and they were instructed to stand on the lightning stool during an active lightning storm for the whole duration of the lightning storm. Um, I, I read that that could definitely be uncomfortable for, for the staff. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Might sound a little bit different today, and we're uploading just a hair later than usual, and that's because I'm recording remotely today, so um, just on the road. And yeah, today's topic, today's adventure sports topic is fire lookout towers. Have you ever seen one of those giant towers on the side of the road, out in the woods somewhere, or on top of a mountain and thought, do people ever go up there? And yes, they do. I used to hike to plenty of them um, out in the mountains, but there are plenty where people still live in, still use uh, all around the country. They're they're actually used, but in many places they're also abandoned. But today's topic, we're just going to be talking about that, how to get to some. And uh, this is a throwback episode with Kurt from three years ago now. So uh, I hope you enjoy and you'll be hearing from us again on Monday. Today is a unique show. I don't know how many of you have traveled to some of the national parks and seen some of the old structures that were built years and years ago, or if you've seen some of the old bridges on the old two-lane roads that just kind of speak about our past and our history and where we came from. Today, we're talking about some old structures that served a very unique and meaningful purpose in our natural heritage in the United States. We're talking about fire lookouts. Fire Lookouts with Amber Casali, and Amber has written the book on Fire Lookouts, Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts to be specific. So today we're going to learn a lot about the history of these things, about the history of caring for our national treasures, and about what this book does to help the rest of us better enjoy this rich heritage. So Amber, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you so much. You bet. So Amber is a writer and editor in Seattle. She's an avid hiker, born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and this is her first hiking guide. So how exciting. Congratulations, Amber. So Amber, I wanted first to kind of talk about what fire lookouts are, what fire lookouts were, and some of the the heritage that we share as nature lovers and citizens of the United States that is related to these fire lookouts. I don't know how many people these days are really aware of the critical role that these played historically. So will you fill us in a little bit? Let's just start with that. What were fire lookouts? Sure. So fire lookouts are wooden wooden structures on a mountaintop that were placed in a strategic uh, spot that has a 360 view to maximize the visibility of the surrounding area. And they were staffed during the summer months and early fall to spot forest fires, um, you know, see them, see them before they become a huge damaging blaze and notify the nearest um, guard station or ranger station. And so these, the idea of fire spotting has been used since the very beginning of um, the 20th century, the 19 teens and 20s. And early on, they would choose uh, a, a fire spotting location and 
they would build wooden platforms and a tree or just have someone simply standing, you know, on a, on a mountaintop or a high ridge line. And then structures started being built um, in the late 20s and really in the early 1930s. Um, many of the structures in Washington state were built uh, as part of the, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And so most of the, most of the oldest structures we see today are from the, from the early 30s and then more were constructed in the 40s and 50s. And that was sort of the height of their use. And so at the height in Washington, there were around 500 to 600 structures. And so it was, it was very common in those times um, before we had the technology for aerial surveillance and, the, and air, airplanes and radar. And so it was just human power of a person living up in this beautiful remote mountaintop area diligently watching for fires during the whole fire season. Man, there's so much there when we think about the, the history. It's a it's kind of a oh, I don't know how to say it, just kind of a raw approach today in today's standards for trying to f- spot fires and manage the forests, you know, to actually put people on mountaintops. And so your job is to watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it's an important job and like you said, this, it's, it's so raw and it really was very effective because when you, when you live somewhere, when, when that 360 degree view becomes your, you know, your backyard or your front yard for several months at a time, you get to know it really well. And so they had a, they had a regular, um, you know, routine or schedule of how, how they would do the, um, the sweep every, every two hours and what they would look for, but it was actually very effective. They were able to see any changes in the landscape um, very quickly. Mm. You know, the other thing that caught my ear there, Amber, was the idea that the CCC built many of these. And for those who don't know, the CCC was one of the programs that was spawned actually by the Great Depression. They needed to put young men to work. Mm-hmm. And so the program was started, and the government said, okay, we have all these young men now. What are we going to do with them? And so similar to the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, the CCC was for younger men. And the younger men did younger men sorts of things, like building trails and these difficult-to-access you know, locations for these fire lookouts. So it's kind of neat because those programs helped to lift, at least historically people believe, they helped to lift the United States out of the Great Depression. But in so doing, they created a lot of infrastructure for the United States that helped with forest management. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point, too, that it wasn't just the structures themselves, but they were really helping build the infrastructure that helped us even be able to get to where the structures were built. And so a lot of the the bridges that we have, some of the the roads in the backcountry, the trail work, the footbridges over um, creeks, um, really the CCC helped to make those wild places accessible to hikers um, then and today. I think it's really neat. It's kind of a rich history. And I also think it's neat because if you wanted to go visit one of these historical locations and kind of get a feel for what it may have been like to participate in one of these fire watch programs, that means you're going on a hike to a place where you have a great view by definition, that's where these had to be built, right? Exactly. I like to say there's there's no such thing as a bad lookout hike. It has you know all the benefits of of what what I love about hiking. You have a you have a great workout. They're in high locations. You usually get uh you know at least a good 
some good exercise um, of varying lengths. And then you get up to somewhere that was, by definition, designed to have that 360 view. And then not only do you get that wonderful summit experience, but then you have this historic structure. Um, and even if it's not open to the public, often the catwalk or the deck around the structure will be open to the public. And if it's a lookout that has been put up onto a tower structure, it's just always an incredible view. Um, you can often peer inside the windows and you just, you just get a sense of so much of that history. Um, even, even from the outside, you might see hardware remnants, uh, old um, cables, um, insul insulators that were used to insulate the phone lines before they used radio. So it's really a, a visual piece. Mm. You know, I can connect with this in, in a personal way because as a child, there was a lookout, and I think only one, but in the foothills of the Ozarks in northeastern Oklahoma. And we used to hike up that. And I remember climbing the this series of steps up a metal tower, and I would get to the bottom of the room where you would actually enter the lookout. And I always wondered if we were trespassing, if we we're supposed to be there. The view was amazing. The structure itself, it wasn't flimsy, but boy, as a kid, it felt flimsy, you know, and it was just so exhilarating to be up there to see so much and then wonder about someone that would stay in a structure like that. What about during storms? And, and you know, I just thought, wow, it just fascinated me. Now, you've actually visited a lot of these. How many of them have you been to? I've been to 44. So there's, there's 44 in the book, and that's about half of the ones that are uh, remaining in Washington State. Wow, 44. And you mentioned whether or not you can access them. So different ones probably have different regulations on them. But how many are open to the public? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head um, because they, they vary a little bit by how they're managed and sort of what level you can access them. So, um, so like I said, some of them, the deck is unlocked. You get this great view, but the lookout itself um, is, is, is locked. And then depending on if that lookout, some lookouts are used as needed. So, for example, in the Park Service, here in Washington, we have Mount Rainier National Park and the North Cascades National Park. Um, those are not used um, full-time during the season, but if there was a need, if there had been a big lightning storm or a known fire in the area, the Park Service may send staff um, to, go, to go monitor it for a, <clears throat> for a few days at a time. So if you happen to be there when, when staff is there, then it would be accessible. So it, it fluctuates a little bit, and then some of them are unlocked and open for day use, you can go in and see the furniture and sign the logbook. Um, and then some of them are open for overnight stays on a first-come, first-served basis. And then some are also open for volunteering. And the Forest Service uh, might partner with a, with a local trail agency or um, a third party to help coordinate um, people being uh, like volunteer interpretive guide um, on the weekends. And then there are six that are actually still staffed in the in the traditional style by a full-time um, staff person for the summer. Mm. Let's talk about the staffing of these a little bit. I have so many questions. I don't know why, but this whole idea <laughs> just seems so romantic to me. It just captures my imagination. Um, you mentioned that there are five to six hundred structures at one point, and I'm thinking that's five to six hundred people or more, right? 
that had to staff these in these remote locations for extended periods of time. I think things like isolation and, and probably difficult living conditions in a lot of the, a lot of the cases. What, what can you tell us about what it was like during the peak of the program to actually be a part of this? Yes, exactly. It, it, it was really varying conditions. So I think that, you know, anyone who was a, who was a lookout staff must have been just a very, um, very independent and hardy soul. They had to contend with really changing weather conditions. So many lookouts are at 5,000 feet or above. And so even though they're there in the summertime, they may get snowed on in, in August or September. You know, that's not unheard of. Um, high winds, they, they're on often a rocky, a rocky peak where there might not be a water source. So they might have to, you know, hike partway down the mountain to the nearest creek or lake um, after the snow has melted later in the summer to get, to get their water. So then they're hauling all their water needs back up to the lookout. Um, they may have to do repairs on the lookout if, you know, there's high winds, it's, you know, it's a structure that of course will need just regular maintenance. So they need to do the carpentry and repainting and, um, and any needs along those lines. And then the, the isolation for sure, I think, um, you know, they really had to have sort of a, a mental strength and fortitude, uh, even though these are really beautiful places. And as anyone who loves to hike knows, you know, being in the backcountry feeds you in a certain way too. And uh, there's, there's animals and the weather is changing and there's, there's a lot to interact with, but without that human interaction, um, you're just in a really uh, different mental state. And so I think that the, the staffing position drew a lot of um, thinkers and writers. There's sort of a, um, you know, history of um, poets and, and authors spending, spending time up there because it's sort of that, that perfect retreat for when they're not, um, when they're not, uh, spotting fires, especially in the evenings. And oh, there's one other point I wanted to say, oh, about um, just being just being so far removed and not only from people, but from their supplies. I think um, there's some great stories around how they had to ration food and uh, a book that, that I read during my research is um, uh, by Iris Spring and, and Byron Fish about the lookout history in Washington. And there's a great story about um, a lookout who he had his supplies uh, of food for all summer and he was out, you know, for a few hours repairing a trail or something. And some hikers came upon the lookout and saw that he wasn't there and, and um, you know, knew that it was this man living alone and decided to make a batch of fudge for him. So, you know, couple hours later, he came back and they're like, oh, you know, we know you're out here working hard. Here's some fudge. And, um, <laughs> and the story says, you know, he, he was very happy. It was good fudge, but he didn't have the heart to tell them that they had used his, his summer supply of sugar. Oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, things are really are rationed and different lookouts had different degrees of um, how often they were able to be to be resupplied, how often um, a visitor would um, would come either either for fun or someone who worked for the Forest Service um, to come and say hi and bring provisions. Um, there's there's another great story about um, uh, I think this, the look, a lookout that's that's no longer standing, but it was a few miles from from a town, and it was a young man, um, probably in his 
late teens or early 20s who was who was staffing it. And this was probably in the 50s. And it said that he was dating a girl um, in the local town and he would and he would run down the mountain on Saturday nights to go to a dance and take his take his girlfriend to a dance and then run back up like these several miles uh, late at night in order to um, call in and be ready uh, for his post on Sunday morning. So, um, <laughs> you know, they, you know, the, the staff made it work for them and um, yeah, had, had varying degrees of, of how cut off they were. And because of that, uh, it was customary for many years. And I'd, I'd say st- still today to actually bring a gift to the lookout staff because if you're a hiker going there, you know that this staff person might not leave um, might not leave the lookout all summer. And so it's customary to bring them something that they wouldn't uh, be able to get easily. So, you know, a dessert or um, fresh fruits and vegetables, anything that would be a nice treat for them as a way to um, ease their, <laughs> ease their uh, isolation and, and say thank you. Do you know what their schedule was like, their daily routine? Yeah, so I, I think for the most part, their shift uh, was 9.30 to 6. And at least that's what it is today and may have um, varied a little bit in the early days. But there was a time that on the dot they needed to um, call in to the guard station. And that was a way to, to make contact, be on the clock, you know, also a safety thing. The, the guard station knows that that person is alive and well. And you can also hear the other, the other lookout staff. Because there were so many lookouts, it was common that lookouts would be um, within view of each other. And so you'd actually sort of have some um, lookout buddies. I, in my book, I call them sister lookouts. So if you do spot a fire, you can actually triangulate the position. You would call the lookout at, you know, the next peak over knowing that he or she could see that fire and use kind of this buddy system. And so that was a you know a, a chance for some some social interaction. You're hearing other voices on the line, and then I believe that they were supposed to do a full scan of the landscape every two hours, and a full scan took about 20 minutes. And um, and then if they do spot a fire, they use a tool called the Osborne Fire Finder, um, which is basically a I call it an analog GPS. Um, to pinpoint the location of the fire so that they can call that in immediately to the guard station. Um, And then other than that, they would be signing off at six o'clock and also be on the phone right at the dot to check in with everybody again. Wow. There's so many neat historical things. For instance, in your book here, you're talking about checking in. Uh, In the beginning, this was done with a hand crank telephone. And we're going way back in history. And I just glanced here. I think this is so cool. Um, the phone lines would get broken by weather or what have you. I can imagine lightning strikes and trees blowing into the lines and wind and icing and everything we deal with today. But these were older systems that were more fragile. And it says that if the phone line broke, then someone would crank the telephone while another person walked and kept grabbing the phone line. And if they didn't get shocked, then they knew they had found the break. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, well, that ought to be fun. Just hike along and grab the line and see if you get a a jolt or not. If you do, you keep going. Wow. Yeah. Those were different days. uh, Very rustic rustic technology. (laughs) 
And, you know, the book here, it goes into how that eventually became radio and then more sophisticated ways of communicating, but still, how fun. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like I was mentioning with um, the fact that their job is more than just the fire spotting. So definitely a lot of upkeep on those on those phone lines um, back when, like you said, a limb could fall or um, anything could happen. So they had to do all the kind of auxiliary tasks in order to make sure that they could they could call in that fire if if needed Mm, yeah yeah fascinating stuff to me for sure so what about current day a lot of these are no longer used right most of them are no longer used but how are they spotting fires now and how many of these fire lookouts are still actively used today do you know yeah it's it's six that are still staffed full-time by traditional um you know park or not park, but Forest Service employees. Um, so really that, how it was done in, in the 30s, still being done today, I believe it's about six. And um, those ones, they're all, um, it, will, it will mention that in the chapter of the book if that's, if that's one of them. And those ones are really just a treasure to be able to, to visit if you can catch the, the lookout staff. They're, everyone I've met was just very friendly, very willing to talk about their experience and, um, you know, show show the firefinder and how it works, talk about the building, show um, historic photographs if they had them there. One of them at Alpine Lookout has um, a, a cooler, like a chest cooler, um, with old photographs in it. And they're kept in the cooler, I think, to help preserve the, uh, the not let too much moisture get to the, the photographs. And so it's really, really wonderful if you can, if you can catch someone and these days they do have days off. And so um, I think they commonly work five days a week and then we'll have uh, two days off and not always on, on a weekend. So, you know, know that you might go and, and not necessarily catch someone, but if you do, um, it's a, a wonderful treat to be able to talk to them. And then apart from those six, there are ones that are staffed um, by volunteers. And if that's something that, that interests you, you can um, contact the the appropriate agency and and sign up to actually actually be a <laughs> volunteer lookout for uh, just for the weekend. Those are usually um, you know one or two day shifts um, that where a, some a citizen has a chance to to be back there to stay in the lookout and and maybe not necessarily spot fires but to be a backcountry presence and to sort of uh, provide that point of contact for hikers and visitors to the lookout. Well, that sounds very fun. I could imagine, like you mentioned, it was a it was a great place for writers to be. I can imagine if uh, someone like yourself who is a writer, I think it'd be so fun to to go do that and just to have that quiet and that view. And to me, that would be in, inspiring. You know, absolutely. I I I would love to be able to just <laughs> spend a summer up in one of those writing um, here in Washington State. The the more well known ones are um, Desolation Peak where Jack Kerouac uh, was a was staffer for one summer and wrote about it in a couple books and then Gary Snyder. And I think it really is that, that extended time and that, um, yeah, just that different, that different state of mind that you're able to get into and the, and the, the knowing of a place. Um, I think there's just, there's so much value with having that, that really sort of intimate, time to be in one location. Um, and as much as I, you know, I love hiking, but by definition, you're, you're constantly moving and 
and even today, if you, you know, you can't spend a summer, even if you don't spend the night, the lookouts are just wonderful places to even just, just sit on the deck and, you know, spend a few hours um, contemplating or, or doing your own writing. And that's one thing I would uh, remind folks. And this was something I, I found constantly doing my research was that I really did need a little more time for lookout hike than I might for other hikes, because it's somewhere that you really just want time to, to soak in the summit, soak in the lookout and enjoy spending a little bit of time there. Hmm. I want to come back to uh, the specifics about this style of a hike, because I think there's some unique things about it. But before we go there, will you tell us a story about one of your uh, experiences hiking to one of these lookouts? Maybe it's your first one, or maybe it was one that was just particularly impactful. But just give us the story of what it was like for you. Sure. Let's see. Oh, good, good question. Oh, so, so many. Um, well, one, I'd say one of my more dramatic experiences was hiking to Three Fingers Lookout in, uh, that's outside Granite Falls um, in Washington, sort of north central Cascades. And that one, the, the Forest Service Road is closed for nine miles before you get to the trailhead. And so, you know, just, just getting to the trailhead is a bit of a, an extra, an extra haul. You really have to want to get there. So um, it's close to cars. So you can either backpack in those extra nine miles each way, which is, you know, significant mileage. And so many people decide to bike in. So, <laughs> so a friend and I biked in with, with our backpacks on, uh, you know, locked our bikes to a tree at near the trailhead um, and then hiked in and it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful hike in. It was in the fall, early fall. So uh, we were able to do some mushroom foraging and um, it was just, just a beautiful location. And you, you get up to, um, to a gap, a tin can gap, uh, the point where you can first spot the lookout. And it is just on this, <laughs> this very precarious, tiny, tiny summit. It's like a spire um, that you you can't believe that <laughs> that a structure is, is is built on there, and there's a permanent snow field uh, that you have to cross in order to to get to the base of the lookout. Or if the snow is melted out enough, um, it's a little bit of a rock scramble. So just physically, um, it was really you know it was it was a lot of work. It was a really solid day. Uh, toward the we were getting there toward the end of the day and planning to to spend the night. And the final, the final stretch of, of getting to the lookout is first a little bit of a ledge that drops off about 1500 feet to mm. the glacier below. And it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a wide ledge, but it's still like, you don't, you don't not want to misstep. And, and then you get to three wooden ladders and these are original ladders from the thirties that are bolted into the vertical rock. And so you, you, climb these three ladders then there's a little bit of a hand line to kind of hoist yourself up onto the stone summit and the lookout probably takes up um 80 of the whole summit area you actually can't even walk around the side of the lookout to get to the back of it you come up on the front and if you want to get to the back you have to go through the building <laughs> because the edge of the lookout is flush with the summit and um this one was um the most um, the only one that would 
possibly require technical skills with the snow field. We, we did bring an ice axe and crampons. And this one is um, definitely not, not a typical hike in the book. The, the other hikes are more um, straight walk-ups, but this one really stands out to me because, you know, the, the harder you work for something, the, the greater the reward. And so we got up there at the, the very end of the day and there were uh, four other people, uh, two, two groups of two already there who were planning to stay the night. And it, it's just a stunning spot. And it was a clear, clear evening and this really wonderful sense of camaraderie and of everyone being really happy to be there. And, you know, we, we start cooking dinner and just everyone sharing food. And one of them had made like, they were also mushroom foragers. They had made like a chanterelle, like homemade sauce that they, you know, that they make and freeze and then bring backpacking. They had this this amazing sauce for their pasta and we're sharing chocolate and um, just a really warm and um, and wonderful evening. And a lot of these lookouts that have, that are open for, for overnights will have some books in there, some photos on the wall, they'll have some games. So that was just a really, a really wonderful experience that stands out. And at the same time, it was, um, (laughs) it was very, very windy. Uh, one of the shutters blew closed in the middle of the night that had been propped open. And we all just, you know, sat bolt upright, um, (laughs) praying that, you know, the guy wires keep, keep holding the structure into this, uh, into this tiny rock pinnacle. So it was was a little bit harrowing. A couple of the guys went out and, and latched down the shutter, but that one, (laughs) that one will definitely stand out to me. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the thoughts that I keep having about this is, you know, if a person were there alone for weeks at a time and they encounter all kinds of weather, then they're going to have to manage all of those sorts of situations alone. And they're going to be a lot of them, I would expect, where the, the surprise happens in the middle of the night or even in the middle of the day and you have to take care of it. So I, I just think, well, and that reminds me, I looked in your book here, the lightning stools. That's fascinating. Tell us what those are. Time for a quick message break to hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey folks, if you're like me, it's that time of year where your New Year's resolution or the focuses of the year are starting to, you know, potentially slip and you're starting to need a little bit more help, uh, tap into more of the uh, accountability of a community or just, you know, try to turn your resolutions to be a little more fun, honestly. Uh, sometimes they can be brutal to try to keep up. Uh, but if that's you and you're looking for this platform where you can take classes that you enjoy and help you to to stay focused, stay centered, um, I really encourage you to check out the Restoration Depot, uh, which is at therestorationdepot.com. And they have classes like yoga, tai chi, essential oils, music, a ton of other stuff. And you can take your first class for only five bucks. Uh, and for, you know, ongoing classes, it's very convenient, very affordable. Um, but sometimes, you know, when you're working at home, like I do, it's really hard to just take that time for yourself every day. You know, it's, you know, I don't even want to tell you what time I'm recording this because it's just ridiculously outside of working hours. Uh, but, you know, I got to do it to fit it in my day. And uh, But it's also unhealthy in the long run. So we need that time every day that we can take for ourselves, focus on doing something healthy, and it's just going to help us in the long run. And so if you're like me and you struggle with that, having the Restoration Depot can really help you 
make sure you take those classes, be a part of a community, and actually have a little fun in your day. I really encourage you again, check out therestorationdepot.com and your first class special at checkout is $5. So because these, these structures are on, um, <laughs> are on these exposed mountaintops and they're often the highest point and they're in lightning prone areas, the risk of lightning strike is, is very real. And so, of course, um, the Forest Service wants to do whatever, whatever they can to help ensure the safety of the, of the staff there. So all the lookouts were grounded for lightning. So they have, um, they have wires going down into the ground, buried into the ground to, to draw the lightning away from the building if it were to be struck. And so um, in addition to that, though, uh, every building needed to have some piece of furniture that was insulated from the lookout ground in case it got struck by lightning to further um, stop any, any transfer to the person. So every lookout had what was called a lightning stool, and it's just a small, um, you know, maybe barely a, a foot wide, um, low to the ground stool with, with four little feet. And they'd have glass, almost like little booties, <laughs> these glass insulator cups on the bottom. And they were instructed to stand on the lightning stool during an active lightning storm <laughs> for the whole duration of the lightning storm. So... Um, I, I read that that could definitely be uncomfortable <laughs> for for the staff. Um, it's a it's a tiny stool, and often you know lightning could be in the middle of the night. Maybe you just want to lay down and go to sleep, but <laughs> you need to stand on your your stool at four in the morning. So um, it it was for their safety, and they there's often also a, a chair that would have inflated feet on it as well. <laughs> that's that's amazing. You know, it reminds me of the punishment that back in those days, a lot of school children had where they had to go stand in the corner, you know. <laughs> and I think, oh, great. <laughs> it just to make matters worse, you have to just stand in the middle of the night when you'd rather be sleeping on top of your lightning stool. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think it would have to take an awful lot of fortitude to staff one of these locations. I really do. Absolutely. Mm. For those who may be listening and that don't know a lot about lightning, most people that get injured by lightning are not necessarily injured by the lightning bolt itself. It's all the currents that are generated in the vicinity of the lightning bolt by the the uh, expanding and then collapsing electromagnetic field that generates electricity in any conductor around. And so even a lightning stool wouldn't protect you from a direct hit. So don't think that that's going to do it for you. I think it's the combination of the lightning rod that was well-grounded that would take the majority of the energy away from the structure and away from any personnel. And then the secondary currents that are generated, maybe those could be absorbed or insulated by something like the lightning stool. But, you know, people often think, well, I have on rubber, rubber boots, so maybe the lightning won't get me. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yeah. So, and I, I, I didn't talk extensively with, um, with the lookout stuff about, about their experience with, with lightning strikes, but I know that it, it does happen. And one of the lookout staff told me that um, he had been in a in a lookout when it was struck, and he, he was he wasn't harmed. Everything was fine, but he did say it smells like sulfur. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of wild. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. I can I can certainly understand the ozone smell. I've smelled that plenty of times backpacking in a storm, but the sulfur it must be that it interacted with the uh, the rock on the mountaintop. Yeah, something like that. Wow. Wild. 
Well, let's talk about this a little bit more. The The book itself is a beautiful book, and I'm, I'm going to just give a quick description here. Hiking Washington's Fire Lookouts by Amber Casale, and by Mountaineer Books, gorgeous pictures, and of course there would be, because you're hiking up to areas with amazing views, and so beautiful pictures of the views, beautiful pictures of the fire lookouts, um, the history of the lookouts, and then you have the guide on how to do each hike to go experience the lookouts. And, of course, it gives all the detailed instructions that people need to, to go do these hikes. It's just beautiful, high quality, well done, and I want to say congratulations again. It, it's a work of art in and of itself, so thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It was, it was such a fun project and really just a, a joy to... Um, to go to all these lookouts. I love doing the research. I love saying, oh, I, I have to go research this weekend. And <laughs> so it was great. <laughs> that is fun. We all need a better excuse to get out and about. And for you, it was writing this book. But here's what I love about books like this. A lot of people need a goal. And with a book like this, you have a list. You can say, okay, my goal is to visit half of these or all of these or... 10% each year for the next 10 years. But whatever the situation is, when you have a book like this, then it gets you off the couch because it gives you something to do and, and something to pursue. And uh, so that's what I think is a, a secondary value to guidebooks like this, that people now have a, a book that they can look at and say, I'm going to check off every single one of these. I'm going to do it. And uh, I love that motivation and encouragement that they can provide. Um, since you're going to the mountaintop, I mean, that's obviously what these are about. You're hiking to a mountaintop with these. Uh, how hard are the hikes? Oh, so they, they do vary quite a bit. Um, I consider to hike anything that you couldn't drive directly to. So some of these have, um, the forest service road goes to the lookout and then there's a gate and you need to park at the gate, but it might only be an, you know, a half mile or a mile from there to the lookout. So, I think the shortest hike is um, is less than a mile round trip. And then the longest one is to Desolation Peak in the North Cascades. If you don't take um, a boat ride on Ross Lake, if you do the whole hike in, it's 46 miles round trip. Wow. So it's a, multi, <laughs> a multi-day backpack. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for the most part, these are a nice day hiking range, you know, in the four, four to 10 mile range, I'd say average um, and often though, expect some, expect some elevation gain for sure. Um, it's not uncommon to climb a thousand feet per mile in these hikes. So there's, you know, hikes that might be only five miles, but you will go up 5,000 feet, um, in those five miles, which is a, which is a very, um, constant and, um, really, really, really good workout for, <laughs> for, for that, um, kind of gain. So, there really is something for everyone, though. Some of the shorter hikes um, don't gain as much elevation. You're able to either start higher or or the lookout itself isn't as high because it just really depends on um, on the geography and where it's where it's located. So sometimes, um, you know, a lookout at 3,000 feet for the surrounding geography that might be enough visibility. So it does vary quite a bit. Um, but it's all, um, it's all listed in a, in a table in the book. So you can sort of see the at a glance and decide, you know, based on what you're interested in, how far you want to go, how much you want to climb, and then just uh, find one that works for you. 
Hmm. I'm looking at the map that's at the front of the book that shows the the relative location of all of these hikes. And there are a handful in the Olympics, on the Olympic Peninsula. There's even one on Orcas Island, so you can actually go to a fire lookout on an island in the San Juans, which sounds like a ton of fun. And then there's <laughs> Northern Cascades, Central Cascades, Southern Cascades, and the volcanic areas around Mount Rainier. There, Boy, it looks like there are four or five right around Mount Rainier. Um, lots of varied landscape in the Pacific Northwest, and I think that's also what makes this so interesting. But not everybody that's listening right now can uh, get to the Pacific Northwest to enjoy the wonderful work you've done on this book. So I have to ask you, you must have learned how to find these places and how to find out uh, what the access was, if you could visit, that sort of thing, because these fire lookouts are in forests all over the United States, right? So if people want to try to go to one of these in their local area, where do they start? Well, I would, I would start with a with a with a Google search um, and whatever they would already use for their you know their local trails and also just look for books. Um, I found that a lot of other states already have a hiking to fire lookouts guidebook, so it was surprising that that Washington didn't. But um, I definitely came across many other states that had those. So I would say look look for a book um, on the subject. Or if there's a hiking, um, you know, ranger district that you already love, you can call the ranger district and ask uh, what lookouts are, are in their district. Um, same with same with national parks. And then I also love just looking at maps. And many maps um, they'll be labeled. And so if I'm, you know, say visiting a, a friend in a different part of the state or want to go to a different area, I'll often just look at the map and and look to see if there is a lookout in that area. And then from there, um, get more details on the trail and look at that specific trail. Well, it seems like such a fun hobby and such a fun way to, to get out into nature and then to get these amazing views. Do you have one of these in Washington that is one of your favorites? I, I don't like to ask people for the very favorite because that's so hard to figure out. But tell us about one of your favorites. Um, I really love one called Alpine Lookout. And that is on the, the eastern side of the Cascades um, over Highway 2, Stevens Pass. You come down onto the east side before um, Leavenworth is a major, a major town. And so it's, it's a bit of a drive uh, from Seattle, but definitely doable as a day hike or a great place to stop if you're already, um, if you're already headed over to the, to the east side. And that one is just a really beautiful summit area. I mean, they, they all are, but the view from there, I just really, I really enjoy. And that one is, is staffed. And so I, I just had a fabulous time talking with the staff person. That was actually the one where I had a chance to see some of the old Forest Service photographs inside the, the cooler. And there was actually a panoramic photo um, that had been taken from the rooftop. And I mean, I think this was from the the 30s or 40s, I had no idea that we were even doing panoramic photos back then. Um, but just that that confluence of the history with your experience today, I found just really, really lovely. Mm, I can see that. You know, just to give the listeners a little bit more insight into the book, this is the kind of stuff you're going to find. I just randomly opened the book and the sentence that popped into my eyes was, you get to take in views of Mounts Rainier, Adams, and St. Helens from the highest point in the Sawtooth Range. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, 
that's the that's the <laughs> thing that sounds so cool to me is that man, you just randomly open this up and it's like, oh, I've got to see that, and then you turn the page and no, I need to see that, and you turn the page and oh man, I've got a, a lot of hiking laid out before me here. Like you said too, every area is so different, and in the South Cascades, we don't have the dramatic um, clusters of you know pointy jagged granite peaks like we do in the North Cascades. But at the same time, in the South Cascades, you have these really dramatic um, views of, of our volcanoes punctuated. So, yeah, just different different visuals in different parts of the Cascades. Mm. Well, you know what? I've asked this question to so many different guests, but I'm going to ask you too because everyone has his or her own reason. The question is, why do you hike? What has it done for you? Oh, that is that is a good one. <laughs> I think it's just the combination of so many different things that I enjoy in one activity. So I like being active. I like just the pure um, physical challenge of <laughs> walking a pill with a, <laughs> with a backpack on. Um, I, I like both spending time with friends and the time I spend alone. Uh, actually, in the book, I did about half of the hikes with, with other people and half on my own. And the chance to explore our, our state, it's been something for me that the more, the more I learn, the more I realize I, I don't know and the more I want to do. And I mean, Washington is just, it's vast. The Cascades, it's an endless, it's, it's a lifetime of, of exploration and amazing trails and more things to see. And so, like I was mentioning earlier with, with having time to just spend at the summit, I think it's just the chance to really connect with a with a place and appreciate its beauty, appreciate the natural world, and continue to to educate ourselves. I, I really like to bring a field guide when I go hiking, and I try to identify the native plants. Um, I'm slowly learning more about mushroom foraging, um, identifying new animals and wildlife. Um, so I think just the combination of all those all those wonderful things that really really add to a sense of um, connection and um, just appreciation for for our land. Mm, good answer. Very well said. Thanks for that. Well, where can people get a copy of the book? Everyone's going to be chomping at the bit now. Yeah, it's it should be available um, in in major major bookstores like Barnes and Noble, REI. And online, it's available directly through the publisher, Mountaineers Books, also uh, IndieBound, uh, Amazon. So, um, and if there's somewhere that you want to see the book and it's not, um, you can let the, let the Mountaineers know, let me know through my website. It's ambricksolly.com. Um, we definitely want to make it, make it accessible um, for people in, in smaller, uh, maybe in smaller cities also. Wonderful. And is the book already out? It comes out uh, on May 1st. On May 1st. So our uh, episode will air, you know, a couple of weeks from now, probably, maybe a little bit sooner than that. And so that means for the listeners, the book is there. You can jump online or go to a local bookstore and get a copy today. So that's fantastic. And I love the website, by the okay. way. I am, I'm just kind of looking at your photo gallery and stuff like that. That's ambercasali.com, and that's C-A-S-A-L-I. So ambercasali.com. Well, Amber, thank you so much for sharing this with us, coming on the show and letting us know about this amazing resource. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. I love to 
love to share the lookout love with anyone who anyone who's interested. So I hope that you and uh, other folks are able to get out and enjoy them this summer, either in Washington or or wherever you're listening from. Mm, thank you. So many things to do and so little time that maybe this is going to be <laughs> maybe this is going to be someone else's thing, like it has been yours, Amber. I, I hope so. Yeah, it's just a beautiful book. Beautiful book. And to all the listeners out there, as always, make sure that until the next show, do find your thing. Get a copy of this book. It's worth having even if you never take a hike. But get out there somehow and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.